All right, man, you ready to do this? Uh, I am. I, I, in fact, I, I wanted to make this really special because I know, you know, Coca-Cola is kind of a big deal to record on. Uh, they're a staple of American history. They've been around for a long time. Um, so you've heard of Mexican Coke, right? Of course, and Mexican Coke is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, glass bottles, real cane sugar, it's good stuff. Uh, I found something called Colombian Coke online. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So I so I bought some, and it came Eric. in this box. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Would you like to Eric. do the honors? Uh, sure. Sure. Hmm. Not... Not, not quite what I was expecting. No, this is about what I was expecting. Really? Are they selling it in like a powder form and you just kind of mix it with your own, you know, carbonated water and stuff like they used to? I can't even. I can't even. Well, your math skills aren't at question here, Brian. I, I want to know, what the hell are we supposed to do with this? Just, just, just don't touch it. Just put it over the, over in the corner and I'll figure something out. I mean, can we at least open it up and smell it? No! Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Hello, Brian. Hello, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm good. pretty tired, but, you know, I'm good. I hear you. I hear you. Um, so we're doing something a little different tonight. So I am recording in my home nerd cave. Sarah couldn't be here. She's been a little on the busy side. She will be back. She will be back <laughs> soon. You sounded kind of uh, like uh, Bette Midler for a minute there. So, you know, we've been doing a lot of ancient history and middle history stuff. And I think we were having this conversation how Nerds on History has always been, you know, we've been doing a lot of the history part, but we haven't really been nerding out as much. And we did a little bit last episode with the, the Game of Thrones uh, one. I mean, that was definitely a very nerdy, nerdy topic. But, um, you know, we've always kind of marketed the podcast as saying we are any, everything from the history of the universe to the history of cheese in a can and everything in between. And, you know, we were talking about maybe doing more in the cheese in a can kind of territory. And so we thought, well, it was weird. This just popped in my head is if we had to think of one of those topics, I, I thought of Coca-Cola right off the bat just because it's easily the most recognizable brand in the world next to pretty much two other brands, uh, McDonald's, who, of course, serves Coca-Cola, has a deal with Coca-Cola. Oh, yes. And and uh, now I think Apple, because the Apple logo is mm-hmm. the, sure. the most recognizable brand. And there's also like over a billion iPhones that have been made at this point. Pretty much, yeah. Um, it's, it's obviously pervasive. It's been around for over 125 years. It's one, of, it's one of the first truly international American brands. And I think for that reason, we have to talk about it because you can't talk about 20th century America without talking about the influence of Coca-Cola. And that's where, you know, I have to kind of rebute this because I, I think it absolutely fits perfectly with this podcast, with, with the history element of it all, and not just the, the cheese in the can stuff, right? Because Coke is way more than cheese in a can. Coke is a staple of American history. Uh, it's, it's America's first really recognizable brand, and it is the progenitor, the, the grandfather of pretty much every major corporation in the world today. The, the, the way that they 
did business has influenced uh, business in general in a huge, huge way for good and for bad. We're going to talk about both sides of that today, right? Because there's always two sides to every coin. Uh, now I'm starting to do the Jersey thing too. I don't know what that's all about, but uh, I'm doing it. So I'm going to go with it for at least the next two seconds. And I'm done. No, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. So why don't we go ahead and just jump into it. So first of all, I think where this really starts is actually with alchemy. Of course you do, Brian. Well, yeah, duh. So, okay, maybe not <laughs> alchemy and more like apothecaries. Because, I mean, I think as we get into the late 19th century, we start seeing, you know, I mean, we've already talked about this many times. You now we're talking about the enlightenment that happens in the middle of the of the 19th century. So you're seeing the birth of modern science and you're seeing all these different techniques for health and wellness that are being developed. A lot of them are pseudoscientific at best by today's standards. At best, yeah. Um, um, but the big thing, though, is we see the, um, the curative power, the quote-unquote curative power of soda. And I mean soda in the purest sense in that it's mineral water. Mineral yeah. water that has, particularly in this case, sodium-based minerals in them that that create the natural effervescence, the natural sparkling nature of it, that people were, were drinking quite a bit of because it believed it, it uh, you know, was good for relieving aches and pains. It was good. Obviously, it was very good at hydrating you, giving you electrolytes and keeping you all that good stuff. Well, it, even my family was involved in the business. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, little known fact. So my great aunt Berta, who was from uh, France, is on my father's side of the family, she came over before my uh, great-grandfather did and set up shop in Los Gatos, up in the hills there, at a natural hot spring. And, oh, nice. Yeah, and her, uh, her brother, Gustav, my uh, great-uncle Gus, the famous albino of Los Gatos, who I believe inspired these stories if you're if you're local to los gatos or this area here in the in the bay area of california then you know about the story of the los gatos cannibals which is completely and totally fabricated this group of albino cannibals that live up in the in the mountains there yeah you've mentioned this before yeah actually, totally made up but i think it my my great uncle was the origin of this well anyhow one of his many responsibilities at the hot spring was to bottle the water and then uh, go and, and sell it in town for its, again, right. restorative properties, right? And people would come right. to the hot spring and soak in the hot spring, and that's why they stayed there. Uh, and they drank it, and they bathed in it, and hopefully not at the same time, but hey, I'm not there to judge. Right. But ultimately what ended up happening is people started to realize that it was expensive to sell and buy water from these hot springs because, first off, there's a limited, there's a finite supply of it. Right. And, you know, these guys were making just a lot of money at it a lot a lot of money at it um that eventually they realized oh, well we can actually carbonate it on our own and there's methods that were developed and i'm i'm not going to get into the actual invention of the carbonation process um because it's technically been around ever since we've been making champagne um through the fermentation process but to, the way to actually force co2 with water to make it to make soda was developed around the again the late nineteenth century, so um, and that's when really where soda fountains became uh, a big deal. And you know, soda water mixed with any kind of essences that you could imagine that was again meant for medicinal use. Right. Uh, soda water because of the fizzy nature tends to settle your stomach a little more. Right. So just that plain and also of course it was mixed with with uh, 
with certain forms of whiskey and then, you know, different, again, different kind of, you know, essences of herbs that had been mixed together um, to create these, these tonics, you know, that would make you feel, um, feel better, allegedly. And that kind um, of, well, I guess that kind of brings us then to, uh, to John Smith Pemberton, right? Mm-hmm. A confederate, a former confederate colonel, crazily enough. Um, well, yeah, he, in he, all fairness, there were quite a few former Confederates, you know, in the American South post-Civil War. Sure, and because then that's really what we're talking about. He he was we're talking about the eighteen eighties, the early eighteen eighties. So he goes to Columbus, Georgia, and he sets up the um, he sets up a drugstore and yeah. the Eagle Drug Pemberton's Eagle Drug and Chemical House. And now his his goal was originally. Was this, he was just trying to make his fortune, is what it was. Uh, he was trying to find something that was going to make him a ton of money. And so he starts experimenting with all these different kinds of drinks. And what he tries to make is a coca wine. And what a coca wine is, is it's, it's actually what it sounds like. It's a wine-cocaine combination. Folks, before you freak out, remember that cocaine at this point was not considered an illegal narcotic. No it way. Was in fact, it was, in fact, a powerful painkiller. Um, that was that was actually given over the counter. Yeah, this is at a point in time where you could buy cocaine over the counter, but you needed a prescription for aspirin. Yeah, kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things have changed quite a bit, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, but cocaine was was meant to, you know, it was believed to be a pain reliever and uh, a relaxer, uh, no, a relaxation tool. And so, obviously, wine is known for being very relaxing. So, combine the two together, you know, you think, yeah, you've got this perfect combination. Modern science tells us now, no, that's mixing an upper and a downer. Not a good, not a good combination at all. Um, but he he made this French wine coca nerve tonic, and um, he was experimenting with all these different kind of things. And eventually, he came across this formula that involved the cola nut uh, with it, and of course other spices too. Um, but he was the first person to really try to harness the cola nut as any kind of drink. There were literally no other colas. Uh, on the market at this point. And of course, cola is where we get the caffeine element that the Coca-Cola is so well known for, that so many exactly. caffeinated beverages have been inspired by. Right. Um, so he eventually, uh, in the process of, you know, basing off of his coca wine and then adding cola to it, came the name Coca-Cola. And, you know, and, I just, uh, I want to mention real quick, Brian, I, I don't mean to cut you off. But I find it so interesting because uh, John Pemberton, like many who fought in the Civil War, were uh, very badly wounded. And some, from a result of their injuries, later became addicted to morphine. This is, that's the funny thing. This was meant to be something that was meant to stave off the addiction to morphine. And yeah. he was also trying to find a cure for that, too. Thank you for bringing that up. Sorry. Yeah. So switch from morphine to cocaine. Not exactly what your addiction specialist is going to recommend these days. Uh, but back then, uh, yeah, perfectly fine. Right, exactly. Yeah, we, we knew so little about the chemical effects on the body at this point. Um, and we're not saying we didn't know that there was coke addicts in the, in the 19th century. There obviously was. Everything in moderation uh, was, was kind of the, the mindset at this point. But here's the thing. So we're now we're talking about 1886, where Coca-Cola first gets uh, made. And basically, Pemberton is trying to make it, sell it on his own through his drugstore. And he's actually not really, I mean, he's making a little bit of money off of it, but he's not 
not really, really getting a return yeah. on investment. Not, with not, it not at much all. at all. I think he was selling at something like fifty dollars the gallon, but you know, producing or the production cost was something like seventy five dollars. Right, something around that. And what we're talking about is we're talking about again the syrup, the formula for the syrup, which would, was he was trying to sell to other soda fountains in Columbus in or in throughout Georgia for the matter, who would then offer it to um, to customers. And you know, and that and that's a good point, right? We think of Coca Cola today. We think of it already coming in a can or a bottle, and we just go down to the store and pick it up that way. There were there was nothing like that, and there wasn't going to be for a while. Instead. You, you sold it in that concentrated syrup and you sold it directly to the photo soda uh, blah, 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 blah. you sold it directly to the soda fountains which were becoming a more popular place to go and to visit uh, especially as while we're not at prohibition yet there's definitely uh, moves and waves in that direction happening oh, in America well, the, at that the time. yeah the teetotaling movement was definitely picking up speed at this point right and with that um, you know bars and pubs are becoming more and more you know demified and soda fountains are becoming a much more you know reputable place to go and, and, and visit well yeah and that's the thing is that soda fountains had become a place to to hang out right and that com- becomes even more so as we get into yeah um the early 20th century but before we get there though let's talk first off about the one thing i think fascinating is that you know when you think of coca-cola cola and you think of just the logo, right? You think of that bright red, very, very specific color of red. That right. Is like, I th- I'm, th- I'm pretty sure that they actually have that color of red trademarked. See, they're like Coca-Cola red. Red with, you know, the white lettering or the reversal of that, right? Right. And what I think is fascinating is that the, the typeface that we see, we think of for Coca-Cola, which is now an actual font that they've, that they've developed was actually just this signature of one of uh, Pemberton's early business partners. And um, it's pretty much stayed identical. It's just been kind of traced over again and again and again. Yeah, it's been tweaked, since, but the main elements of it are still there. Which I just think is really, really, really cool. Like the, It's pretty much been around since the beginning. Unfortunately, Pemberton never really got to see the success uh, of Coca-Cola as, as anything. Um, so toward the end of his life, he does eventually sell, uh, the formula to Coca-Cola to a person who he believes can make money with it, uh, which is Asa Candler, uh, who was a, a, you know, a savvy businessman. And, uh, he decides, well, the first, the only way we're going to be able to really make money off this thing is if we're, if we're going to get it into all the soda fountains in the area yeah. is we got to give it away. Yeah. So he, he was the first person to come up with the idea of coupon, marketing basically like he would ma- he had all these little beautiful the articulate coupons made absolutely brilliant too because once you've got people hooked and and remember at this time there's all these other types of soda that were around it's not to say that coca-cola is the first soda pop that's out there there's been ginger ale and sarsaparilla for quite a while before that there were lemon and strawberry variants uh there was a lot of different stuff but they were all kind of more on the fruity side with the exception of maybe root beer. And Coca-Cola comes in and completely changes all of that. It's a totally mm-hmm. different, totally unique flavor. So to get people on board, you know, he, he entices them, gets them that free drink. And it's just, it's absolute brilliance because once they get that free taste, they're coming back for more and they're going to pay five cents uh, to do it. 
Yeah, and by the way, five cents was the price of Coca-Cola for a long time. It was like for almost 50 years, it was it was the price of Coca-Cola, which is crazy to think. Well, it was one of their um, big marketing campaigns is that it's only five cents. Exactly, and that was for a lot of the early... So really what, what Candler realized to do is he wasn't afraid to spend some money to get to make the money back. So, yeah. you know, the giving it away, the the people at the Coca-Cola company use it as saying he wanted to buy the world of Coke. Uh, of course, taking from the, the motto from the 1960s and early 70s. And the truth is that, you know, Asa Candler was kind of skeptical at, at first. He really didn't put a whole lot of investment into Coke initially. He did as time went on and he realized that it was getting more and more popular and that if he properly advertised it, then he could really bring it into his his monopoly, his own uh, you know, money that he was making at the time, his own business that he was making at the time. And that would happen in 1892 when he finally does purchase and fully incorporates Coca-Cola uh, as, as his company. Absolutely. And, um, and by this point, you know, he really starts to ramp it up and he starts to make really beautiful advertisements, furniture yep. that has Coca-Cola branded into it. Any way he could think of to get people to to remind them of the brand, and if you can, if you find one of these, you know, original mirrors or original like lampshades, calendars, that, uh, uh, calendars, you know, coasters, that, uh, even like totally. little jewelry boxes or, or little uh, compacts, you know, pocket compacts. Right. If you can, if you have any of these that are, and you get them appraised because if they're authentic, they're worth quite a bit of uh, money. So. Um, so they do that, but in 1899, he finally, he, I think what he realizes is that um, he feels like he's taking Coke as far as it can go. But he knows there's room to grow. And so what the solution to that is, if he's only going to get, if he's going to get it outside of Georgia, basically, outside of just, you know, the cities nearby, he's got to find a way to start bottling it. Um, but he doesn't have the resources to do it. He's pretty much maxed out capital wise. Well, not just the resources, but he was also extremely resistant to the idea of bottling in the first place. It was well, sure it quality was, control goes down too, so there's that too. Yeah, he he yeah. felt that the most efficient way to get coke was to get the syrup and to get it out to the soda fountains wherever they might be and that right. the, the marketing would do all the real work for him. And if he sent out enough free advertising to these different soda fountains and had them put up around the walls, then uh, you know, it, those would do all the hard work. But later he would be approached by a couple of gentlemen who would convince him that this was, you know, definitely the way to go. But even though he's still not convinced, he 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 ends up agreeing. He says, okay, absolutely. I'll let you go ahead and begin bottling Coke. I'll just sell the syrup to you. And you can take on all the responsibilities of having to get the raw materials get the manufacturing plants built, maintain their quality, and not only that, but get them distributed and sent out uh, to the places for, for sale. Right, which was really, I mean, nowadays it's seen as a brilliant business move because what he essentially did is he owns the brand, he owns the intellectual property of Coca-Cola, but he's outsourcing without actually using, no, I don't mean outsourcing in the sense of going to another country, but outsourcing from the terms of his business the the industrialization process and by doing that he's cutting down costs for himself they're actually the ones taking on the risk of that but he's also reaping all the benefits it's 
It's pure capitalism is what it is. Well, yeah, but there's another side to that because then he gets caught up with this decades-long problem, which is now you've got all these independent bottlers and no real clear um, you know, contract drawn up and definition of how they're supposed to be maintaining the quality of the bottles that are going out and how they're right. supposed to help keep imitators from creating and bottling their own ideas of what, you know, they think. Oh Coke my is. God. So many imitators. And also like they ripped off the typeface too. Like yeah. there was King Cola, there was Coke Ola. There was Coca-Cola. Um, there was people who literally just put Coca-Cola on the bottle. With with K instead of C, basically. No, no, no. Exactly as it was written. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there are some really ballsy attempts at at, you know, monopolizing off of their prop popularity. Yeah. And uh, and it became a big problem. Yeah. So what they what they thought that originally they would do is to keep it authentic because again they realized that the formula to Coca Cola was what was essential to its success. Um, they would they made these labels that they would put on the what was a fairly standardized bottle at this point, and Asa Candler would sign them or have a signature printed on them as a proof of authenticity. Uh, the problem with that though is. Coca-Cola is recommended to be served at what temperature? Do you know? I don't. 37 degrees Fahrenheit, just above freezing. Ice cold, as they say. So it's because of that, they had to basically keep it in buckets of, you know, ice. crushed ice. Yeah. And the, well, the problem is with, with that much ice, and there's, of course, hot weather, because this was, at this point, primarily a summertime beverage, you would end up having the labels just melt off or like the it would the water would loosen the glue yeah and these would they would come off so sometimes you would have coke right next to its competitor and when they're lifting the bottle out of the bucket there was no way to distinguish which one they were actually picking up and uh and drinking uh, oh by the way we might want to mention where soda pop comes from at this point because at this point the the bottle fixture actually had to be pushed down from the top and the cork would go down to the bottom, and that's why you call it pop, because it would make a popping sound. Yeah, there was a so, piece of wire that you kind of jammed in, and, uh, and that released the, the carbonation. You, exactly, you get that pop. Well, not exactly. exactly like that, but yeah, you get a pop. Um, but that was all changed when they came up with, with two things. First of all, they were realizing, well, the only way they can, we can really protect this is screw labeling. We got to put it on the bottle itself. And by that, I mean, it has to be embossed in the bottle yeah. itself. Uh, and so they had a contest for a design. And the design that won was 90% of what we think of as the Coke bottle today. Um, it, it was a lot they, wider. It was a lot fatter. It was a lot fatter in the middle. Yeah. Um, and, and that was because he made a mistake. The guy thought that when he saw Coca-Cola, he thought the Coca referred to the, the coconut, like the cocoa the pod. Uh, pod. Yeah, exactly. So he designed the, the middle side of it. You know, there's the normal bottle stem, but the middle body of it was literally shaped quite a bit like the ridges of a cocoa pod. Yeah. Um, and trust me, uh, he, he tried as hard as he could to find, you know, inspiration of cocoa leaves and what have you, but he couldn't find any pictures of them. Uh, what he ended up finding was the picture of the cocoa pod. And, and exactly as you say, that's where that inspiration comes from. And then the problem goes into actually manufacturing the bottle. Because when very, they, yeah, well, they built these prototypes, right? And they were very difficult to uh, to produce on a on a you know production line, and so they needed to just kind of skinny them up a little bit, right? And so what they actually thought about is what was the inspiration was actually thinking about a woman's petticoat. Mm -hmm. when, when, weirdly enough, is how 
the 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 figure of a woman looks with that and that little contour, the hourglass quote unquote figure, and so they use that to to basically um, align the center of the body with the bottom of the body because it creates that you know it's because the bottom width is the same as the the sorry I should say the bottom circumference of the bottle is the same as the middle circumference of the bottle, um, and voila, you have the most recognizable bottle probably on the planet. Um, and folks, if you want to know how 19th century thinking used sexuality to, to, to sell products, this was it. Because essentially the idea of the feminine figure and the idea of how good it felt to hold it in your hand, because it was, you know, it, it was kind of designed to fit into the curvature of your hand, um, was just, was just ingenious. And, um, and it, the shape has pretty much stuck, even though the embossing is no longer on the, on the bottle. Um, the shape is virtually the same as it is today, or as it was back in, 1890, or seven, in 1899, when we're referring to the Coca-Cola brands used in other countries in the world. And it's, it's, it's referred to as the, the contour bottle The design, contour bottle, yep, absolutely. Which was introduced in, in 1915 at this point. Thank you, 1915, 1899. Um, and so now we're, we're kind of getting to World War One, And, or actually we are in World War One. We're in World War One. We, Hooray! We're in World War One at this point. And, um, you know, there's like a lot of things going on. The big thing that's risk is that, um, is sugar. You know, at this point, yeah. Coca-Cola used cane sugar in every country in the world. Where it, well, in this case, it was only in the United States. Uh, used cane sugar heavily in its... Um, in its production, and the supply of cane sugar was uh, at risk because of the war. So, um, in fact, Coca-Cola almost didn't survive. Well, a couple other things happened. You know, Asa Cadler, who really took Coca-Cola and made it into the company that it is today. You know, he started those first movements so much more than Pemberton. Right? He retires uh, from the company in 1916, and you know, he kind of is predicting the writing on the wall. He sees these hardships that um, the company's going to go through that the entire country and world is going through. And uh, it doesn't encourage him to stick around. Exactly. So he eventually retires and, but yet no Coke did survive. The brand did survive the war. Um, And as we get into the, you know, the, the, the twenties, basically we start to see, well, a couple different things. First of all, the social trend toward Coca-Cola or toward um, soda fountains is starting to change a little bit because as the 19th Amendment gets ratified and you now mm-hmm. have the official start of prohibition, you have people wanting to, you know, get drunk and get like, you know, have cocktails, go to speakeasies and things like that. So it becomes less about the soda fountain and more about, you know, the gin joint. And... Um, so again, what what saves Coca-Cola? Well, it comes down to marketing. In this case, it comes down to, I believe, the efforts of Mr. Bob Woodruff, who would uh, become the uh, the president of the of the company in 1923. Yeah, 1923 exactly. And he remained and he, there for 60 years. And his father was chairman of the board, so that kind of helped. <laughs> um, but 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 um, but uh, before you think you know, of anything about that, I mean, keep in mind that he was an established businessman who had been a vice president in another business before he joined Co- the Coca-Cola company. So he was not just like getting handed a job by his dad. Um, but he was the one who really honestly decided to take it and make it, one, a national brand, and two, into a year-round brand. 
right? Because that was the challenges you were starting to encounter is that one, people were only drinking it in the summertime because it is, again, it's meant to be served ice cold. And two, it's the fact that, um, you know, it was, it was kind of regional at this point. So they really start taking advantage of national advertising, you know, um, and not only that, but by 1914, you now have, you know, radio, you've got, you've got, uh, I mean, you have, you've got the motion picture, but they weren't using motion picture ads at this point for the brand. Um, and the moment you have radio is the moment you also start to see national advertising of every kind. And Coke wasn't the first in this case. And actually that was the Beluva watch company, but the Beluva, um, but they were the kind of the ones who paved the way and Coke capitalized on it. Once you have the ads for Coca-Cola starting, then you have everyone nationwide wanting to find and get access to the stuff. And now because they had the bottling process in place, you could, they could distribute it nationwide. They can start to create more, more than one bottling plant. They could now set up a, 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 a supply chain that could, could deliver to the demands, the growing demands of, of the brand. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's also worth mentioning that they had another really important thing going for them, and that was their chief competitor, Pepsi, who, you know, if you don't realize, Pepsi's been around for a really long time. Uh, they were invented in 1898 to directly compete with Coke, and they had a different enough formula that, you know, they could not be accused of trying to copy them. Uh, in 1923, they officially go bankrupt. The, the First World War and the sugar rationing that continued after the war uh, put a nail in the coffin for them, and it would really hurt Pepsi... <sighs> Throughout the 1920s, they would go bankrupt another time in 1931. So Coke really had the opportunity to to run with it. Right. And that was the amazing thing is because um, while Coke maintained the five cent price point, the thing they had the advantage of is they had already been kind of one one. They had already been winning over the hearts and minds of the American consumer. And it was, you know, it was marketed. You know, you started to see these early ads of of everybody. I mean, there's an early Coke ad of Uncle Sam handing people a Coke at the at the soda fountain, and there's the American worker taking a break and having a Coke. And that was what people started to think about. They started thinking about when they take a break, they want to have a Coca Cola. Yeah. And um, even when you get into the beginning of the Great Depression, like you're saying in '31, or actually really in 1929, people still wanted to go down to the Coke Man. And yes, they did have Coke, you know, carts that were on ice and they would still buy a Coca-Cola because it reminded them of what it was like when they had a job, you yes. know, and they, they would still call their friends and say, Hey, why don't you come over the corner? I'll buy you a Coca-Cola. Um, very different it, than today's Coke man who, who is equipped a little differently and probably on the run from the DEA yeah. or at least so, the local authorities. Yeah. Or at least the local authorities. Exactly. You know, so can I also say though, because this is, Again, you know, so many important things happen in this relatively short period of time, right? But um, 1919 also saw, and I know I'm going back a little bit, the introduction of bottling plants in Europe uh, via Paris and Bordeaux, uh, which were now sending Coca-Cola globally, at least out into Europe, um, and would later be a launch pad for, uh, for other parts of the world, uh, Australia, Austria, Norway, South Africa, all in 1938, there was this big push to get Coca-Cola out and uh, out into the world. True, but that wouldn't truly happen until after World War II, and we'll get to that in just a second, um, because we have another thing that happens, because we talked about how you can get it nationwide, but we also had to talk about what made it a year-round drink. Well, 
Um, as it turns out, Woodruff actually went to Canada. We went, I think he went to Saskatchewan and he found, you know, people drinking Coke huddled over a fire. Yeah. Um, and it was freezing cold outside. And he realized that, that there was a winter market for it. It wasn't just a summer beverage. And so how do you capitalize on that, Eric? What's the one thing in winter that, that is going to guarantee you're going to spend money? Uh, that would be the common cold. <laughs> True. Uh, very, about, very true. Okay, okay. Not common cold. Uh, the other thing that causes you to be uh, red in the face, and that is uh, Santa Claus. Well, sure. But more importantly, Christmas, right? And by the way, we're skipping over a couple of other innovations, like the fact that they had originally, they were the inventor of the six-pack. Oh, they yeah. Had, that's huge. They were starting to sell them in little you know, cardboard or wood, or even uh, earlier cases, wooden cartons um, that you could buy. And, uh, you know... So you instead of having to think one on one, because we have the dawn of refrigeration, you can go, you can buy multiple Coca Colas, throw them in the fridge, and then have them when you're ready. I should say the dawn of modern refrigeration, not the dawn of because we've had refrigerators since the early 20th century, but by the 30s we had actually managed to. And with ice boxes, them. we've had refrigerators for a long time. Yeah, but when you get to the electrification of America in the 1920s, that also leads leads to that that innovation. Um, but more importantly. So when they tried to market it for Christmas, they, they originally said, well, who will better to market it than Santa Claus, basically. Um, and the marketing for it was really ingenious because we all know of the famous Norman Rockwell, uh, St. Nick. And, uh, you know, we also know of, we talked about this in the, on the He's Kind of the Big Deal episode. Thomas Nast was the guy who really first illustrated um, mm-hmm. Santa Claus the way we, we see him and with the modern fur coat and things like that. But what really truly made him... No, the jolly old elf completely was, in fact, Coca-Cola. And it was because the designer of that saw all these Depression-era mall Santa Clauses who were all very skinny and they looked like they were alcoholics, basically. And he was, that's not Santa Claus. That's not what Christmas is about. So he wanted to be the inversion of that. He wanted to be someone who was jolly, who was plentiful. Because if you were fat, that means you had a lot of money to buy a lot of food. So it was the reminder to the people this vision of opulence, this vision of, of plentifulness that uh, was so appealing to them. And um, so that pretty, much, that pretty much clinched it and has firmly established the vision of Santa Claus that we have today in our minds as this, you know, overweight man wearing red and, um, and eventually, you know, being the sole, you know, thing we think of when it comes to Christmas. But... Um, it is important important to note that the, the original Santa Claus ads was it was a mall Santa. It was someone who was like on a street corner drinking a Coca-Cola. And they decided to actually change it to the full-on, the real Santa Claus. So they started working in pictures of the elves and like leaving it by the Christmas tree when they were, you know, all these famous images we now think of when we think of the Coca-Cola Santa. Um, it was during this period of time that that shift fully transformed. Yes, indeed. We're going to kind of fast forward to another major event that Coca-Cola had a huge hand in, which was, um, you know, the Second World War. Exactly. Right? In fact, they they were there in Poland as Hitler invaded. Uh, <laughs> the troops were using uh, bottles of, of Coca-Cola to, uh, to, 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 yeah, no, never mind. I, no. Yeah, yeah. I wish we know that we could say that, but uh, that is not true. Um, <laughs> however, however, when... America got involved in the war in 1941. 
um, we start to see something really actually dangerous or risky, but also really ingenious happen. Um, you know, for those who may be unfamiliar with the war effort that was talked about in many U.S. history classes now is that Roosevelt tried to not just put the burden of the war on the United States government, but rather he promoted the war effort as a means of getting the entire U.S. economy back off its feet because historians now believe a lot of that is because a lot of his New Deal ideas were either being overruled by the Supreme Court or they were being, uh, they just were not working. Um, so by getting us involved in the war, or rather I should say in the war effort, um, he could promote the kind of industrialization and kind of things that America had been known for at this point, being an industrial power, um, to get us out of it. So you had, of course, you had clothing companies making uniforms for, uh, and you had, you know, you had Ford and you had Dodge making, you know, parts for planes and for tanks and for trucks and all these things sure. going on. Well, what's Coke going to do? Give them bottles? <laughs> no, they're going to make Coke. They're going to make Coke because it's what reminds them of being back home, which is genius. Yeah. But there's a quality control problem because even though Coke had started to work its way into Europe, there was no way to actually guarantee that the soldiers were going to get it. So what do you do? Well, they decided to make bottling plants on military bases. First off, brilliant genius but at the same time super super risky because you have to have representatives of coca-cola at these these military based bottling plants to ensure that they one know how to actually make the product and to keep up with the product because they have to ship because the, the syrup is still being made in the united states it's just being shipped to these different parts of the world so it's a risky endeavor it's absolutely risky and plus it's a, you know think about what the enemy could use that for right it's a coca-cola was a morale booster so if that syrup got compromised what would happen you know it would have been the syrup that ended the war exactly the syrup that ended the war so they did it and they they mechanized like crazy they had like 60 over 60 different bottling plants throughout all of the theaters of world war ii um all all over literally in new guinea in <laughs> in the middle east in you know as far north as you know iceland it was, they were just all over the place it's crazy it was yeah. genius, too, because these soldiers who are being reminded of home through something as simple as a bottle of Coke are now going to become your most loyal advocates for the drink when they get back home. And uh, they're going to be loyal to that brand because they're going to remember sitting in that foxhole. And that was the one thing that was given to them that gave them a, a smile on their face. And so as we get to the end of the war, we talk about this on our Lost Network episode. We really get to the, the, the dawn of of the golden age of television. People are arguing now that with Netflix, we are in the new golden age of television and that that was the silver age of television. But this is, no, this is the real golden age we're talking about, the you 1950s, know we can 1940s. Do, we, we can be in the platinum age of television, okay? Let's give, let's give the 1950s a golden age. Fair enough. I agree with that. Um, so you're in the golden age of television. And so you, with that, you start to see the dawn of Coca-Cola commercials of all kinds. They were originally done by the host of the TV show is right in the middle of the, of the show. But then you start to see produced, really, really cool produced Coca-Cola commercials, one that have special effects, one that have animation, uh, new characters. There was that little Coca-Cola elfin, like Sprite kind of character who had a little bottle cap for a hat who was, you know, uh, looks like he was flying around on sparkling, I don't know, I guess it was fizz of soda, but it looked like he was like a little male version of a pixie. 
um, going around and giving Coca-Cola to everybody. Um, so you see that in, in its marketing, but more importantly, since we were talking about Coca-Cola's presence in you know sixty different you know parts of the world, um, Coke had these relationships that they were building with these countries because essentially they they were all countries that were allied with the United States, but they were not granted an automatic pass to go into the United States, or just, sorry, I should say, they were not granted automatic passes to you know come into these countries and start doing business. So you have to form these relationships and then not just say, well, right, we're going to stay here. But it was because of the exposure that they had to those countries in World War II that they were able to maintain those relationships and then expand uh, worldwide. And really, it's in the 1950s that Coca-Cola goes from being an American brand to the first truly global brand. Yeah. And again, you know, poor Pepsi, who's trying to make a comeback, who started doing a lot better uh, sales in the United States than the during the the Second World War when they changed their logo to a red, white and blue, the one that you know that's so famous today to kind of represent, you know, the American war effort. Uh, and they also started introducing things like the Pepsi can in 1945. Um, these are all, you know, kind of big selling points for them. They're just trying to fight back in America just to again get some market share, as much market share as they can. Only they're missing out on that big opportunity that Coke is seizing, which is what you're talking about, which yeah. is that globalization. Well, that's, yeah, and that's the thing is that Coke has always kind of been one step ahead. They also were the ones who popularized soda being in cans, whereas they had been, they had kind of revolutionized them being in bottles to begin with. Now, now they were putting them in cans, and then you know, then eventually it was the size of the bottle, then it was the size of the can, and you know, it's it's they've done all these different things uh, to to try to stay one step ahead of Pepsi. Um, and I think Pepsi now is, they're kind of just, they're, they've become kind of complacent in just being number two, and they're just, they're kind of okay with that at this point. Well, because they're a big number two. I mean, they've, they've done what Coke has done, and they have expanded out into all sorts of other brands. In fact, Pepsi owns a lot of stuff that is not drinkable at all, like, you know, Lay's Potato Chips, and Aunt Jemima, and Captain Crunch. Uh, these are all things that Pepsi owns, and Pepsi's got a very reasonable uh, market share, not as much as Coke still does, um, but they've got a lot. And they, they definitely do. Before we get into talking about Coca-Cola being this national brand and, and protecting the formula uh, as it goes across the world, uh, we probably should talk about what's in the formula for a second, because um, many people have talked about now that the Coca part of Coca-Cola is uh, you know, the, the cocaine aspect of it. Um, and, you know, Asa Candler talked about this too. He, he was adamantly says that there was never Coca-Cola or there was never cocaine in Coca-Cola. And that's not really true, is it? No, it's not true at all. In fact, cocaine continued to be used in the, in the formula up until 1903, although it was significantly reduced from the original formula that was being sold back when this was still very much a pharmaceutical, uh, it still contained, um, they still contain cocaine. And so it was uh, definitely time for that to be phased out and removed. Um, and essentially what they, they instead started doing in 1904 was using spent leaves. So essentially the leftovers of the cocaine extract extraction process so that it still retained that, um, that element within the formula, right? That is still 
gives it not just cocaine, but also gives it a unique taste. Uh, and that would later be replaced by an artificial um, extract uh, that is uh, prepared by a, a New Jersey company. So it's interesting, though. It's, it's worth noting that cocaine still continued um, in its sale for, you know, not a huge amount of time if you consider the whole span of the company, but at least in those right. early years. Um, but one thing we forgot to mention is as we get to the war on, uh, and I shouldn't say the war on drugs because that was until the 1970s, um, but uh, as we get into... Know, prohibition, one of the things we don't talk about is that prohibition didn't just prohibit alcohol, it prohibited pretty much anything that was considered um, dangerous, right? Yeah. And you know, the, t- yeah. the teetotaling movement didn't just talk about the dangers of, of, uh, of alcohol, it was the dangers of, of marijuana, of, of uh, heroin. And caffeine. And, uh, caffeine, yeah, caffeine. So Coke was um, still a target at this time, just not yeah. as popular a target as it would be with, um, you know, some of the bigger names like you're mentioning. Well, they figured they had bigger priorities to deal with, right? Sure. Um, but, but also um, cocaine, right? So, um, so by taking it out of the brand, they were able to maintain some of that, salvage some of that image. Fast forward to the early 1950s, late 1940s, as we're trying to globalize Coca-Cola, um, they have to come up with a bottling process that maintains their quality. Well, you can't ship Coca-Cola all over the world because, frankly, it, 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 at this point, even though we, yes, we had airplanes, we had you know, modern, early modern shipping processes, Coke just doesn't keep that well. <laughs> uh, and plus, you want it to taste as fresh as you can possibly make it, right? Mm-hmm. So Coke starts to make bottling plants, permanent bottling plants, all over the world. Um, and the recipe starts to change, too, in minor ways. The flavorings, quote, the, the actual flavors haven't really changed, yeah. but the way you sweeten it has, in fact, changed. Um, because as sugar became more and more expensive in the United States, and as the subsidies with uh, corn became more and more available uh, and became more and more attractive, uh, you know, these companies and companies like Coca Cola figured out a way to distill a sweetener out of corn and thus. You know, developing high fructose corn syrup, right? So, which they um, which they fully embraced, and yeah. it's, again, one of the many controversies that surrounds Coca Cola to this day is that you know additives like that are shown scientifically to be leading to increases in type two diabetes and uh, childhood obesity and obesity in right. general in our country, uh, which right, continues right. to be on the rise, not on the decline. Uh, well, not just that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's also that the Coke and Pepsi is guilty of this as well, and all the soda brands are. They all. They're pretty much yeah. owned by three companies. Um, but um, as we realized that we started having a, a surplus of corn, and that we need to get rid of, we started making you know high fructose corn syrup. And then this is more to the seventies when they started putting it in everything. Yeah. But. Um, you know, uh, they started changing the sizes. You know, that's why we have 20-ounce bottles of Coca-Cola, whereas the original right. bottle was 12 ounces, yeah. you know. Um, and so that's another reason is, you know, you think you have a Coke today. If you go to a soda machine, you're getting a 20-ounce bottle of Coca-Cola, whereas in the 1930s, you have gotten almost two-thirds of that. Well, so. I think the 12-ounce was even a step up, wasn't it? Wasn't the original bottle uh, a bit less than that? Something like It might have even like been like 10 or 8 ounces. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah, totally. Um so, and the 12 ounce was really more or less the can yeah. uh, was what, um, and even now today we're starting to see that shifting because of the lobbies toward healthier and cutting sugar from our diets. But 
Um, at any rate, so the American recipe for Coke includes high fructose corn syrup, but everywhere else in the world, it still uses cane sugar because their cane sugar is, doesn't have the same subsidy protection that corn does in the rest of the world. So it's still made that way. And that's why there's been the rise of Mexican Coke because it's a North American version of Coca-Cola that uh, can be acquired that still uses cane sugar. Um, it does actually have less sugar, by the way, in mm. it than regular Coke. A, a 12 ounce can of Coca-Cola nowadays has 40 grams of sugar, <whistles> 40 grams, yeah, which is uh, well over your um, your allotment, yeah, uh, the, your daily allotment of sugar, um, as according to you know the American health system. Um, whereas I believe Mexican Coke only has 33 grams, still a lot of sugar. Still, it is still absolutely a lot. But the difference is that the Mexican version brand of Coke and the European and you know everywhere else in the world version of Coca-Cola would bring you nearly to your daily allotment of sugar. The American version just knocks you right over it, basically, yeah. and gives you that insulin shock, shock that you crave. Well, you know, in that you mentioned um, you mentioned other Coke or sorry, other brands that are essentially owned by Coke, right? There's three major companies that pretty much dominate almost all major soft drinks around the world. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that really begins in 1960 when Coke acquires the Minute Maid Corporation. And right. uh, not only Minute Maid, but there's so many brands that we probably don't even realize when we're buying, we're really buying Coke. I mean, we're buying from the Coca-Cola company. Totally. Um, Sprite? Yep, Sprite. Is absolutely... Power Aid, uh, Fanta, Dr. Fanta, Pepper. Right. Dr. Pepper uh, was eventually purchased by the Coca-Cola company. Was it? I thought it was its own company. That's interesting. I believe they're purchased by uh, Coca-Cola. We might want to double check that because I thought they were owned by the a w Corporation now, but I could be... I, could well, be I know, totally I know Mr. Pibb for sure. Um, oh, Mr. Pibb. Mr. That's what it is, Mr. Pibb. So Mr. Pibb and Dr. Pepper, of course, are the, the two flavors that pretty much are the same flavor, right, of soda. So Mr. Pibb is for sure owned by um, by the Coca-Cola company. Dr. Pepper, I believe, is, is was, ah. was never owned by Pepsi. Here it is. The, the Coca-Cola company uh, owns Dr. Pepper through, uh, not owns, but distributes Dr. Pepper through Europe only. Got it. Okay. But so they're, because like, I think Dr. Pepper is their own company. Uh, Dr. Um, or their, Pepper Snapple Group. Uh, operates in the United States only, but their right. their Dr Pepper's distribution in Europe, interestingly enough, is done through the Coca Cola company. Right, and I believe Seven Up is owned by the um, by the Dr Pepper Snapple Group, yes. essentially as well, because um, Pepsi eventually made Sierra Mist, which was their answer to Sprite and to Seven Up, basically. Um, and we also, I mean, we're missing, we're skipping over a ton of them. Um, well, over a hundred in Coca-Cola alone. Yeah. I mean, there's tons. Uh, Barks Root Beer is owned by Coca-Cola. Yep. Um, there's just, just just so many, so, so many. Um, and you're right. And so now when you, and part of this is also McDonald's, uh, not to blame, but you know, when you think about going to all these companies, and when you start to see the mechanization of American brands across the world in the 1970s and really the birth of fast food happens too. Coke makes these deals with a lot of these companies. You know, Coca-Cola made this you know, deal with McDonald's that they've had pretty much ever since then. When you go to McDonald's, you you see everything that's there is a brand of Coca-Cola, which includes Minute Maid Lemonade, yeah. which makes sense, yep. right? Same thing if you go to like a, a KFC, they, they have a deal with Pepsi. 
Um, in fact, Pepsi owns KFC now. I'm pretty sure. Um, but uh, you know, like Nestle, they own Pepsi owns Nestle as well. Uh, and just, no, I believe Nestle is owned by. Oh, Nestle. Coke. I'm sorry, they were owned by Nestle. Yeah. Oh, Nestle is owned by Coke. Yeah, Nestle is owned by Coke. Really? Yep. Wow. Yep. So is High C. So is uh, Bimbo Bread. If you are um, Latino and you live in the United States and your family is originally from Mexico, you probably know what I'm talking about. Bimbo is a big um, producer of, of breads and other uh, tasty snacks. Uh, vitamin water, the very famous vitamin water. Uh, even um, Dasani uh, bottled water is all owned by Coke. Right. And so you have this dominance that happens as a global brand that they share for at least a good 20, 30 years. But then you get to the, the beginning of the 80s. And while, you know, Coke is pretty much safe with all its other brands that they own, the actual drinking of Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. yeah, um, the, the growth of the brand stalls, right? Yep. And that began the infamous 80 days that happened in the year of our birth, Mr. Brookmont. <laughs> I know, yeah. The 1985 um, debacle of New Coke. New Coke. Oh, Sounds man. almost dirty when you say it, right? Not New Coke. Yeah. Remember, you know, Pepsi had been challenging Coke for years and got really aggressive in the 1960s and in the 1970s and started the Pepsi Challenge, where people were, you know, brought out of the grocery store or pulled off the street or whatever and presented with two options blindfolded. And they had to say which one tasted better. And all these people kept choosing Pepsi. And the truth is people were choosing Pepsi. Coke performed the same tests. Coke brought people in and had them a blind test taste. And they found that those results actually matched what Pepsi was saying, that people did prefer it. And so they created this whole new formula for Coke, and they did the same blind tests again, only with the third drink, the new Coke, in there, and people loved it. All the test groups thought it was great. They thought it was better than Pepsi, better than Coke. It was this new Coke, and so it seemed like this was it. This was the opportunity to finally kick back against Pepsi, start a whole new ad campaign around how much everybody loves the new Coke, but what they weren't expecting was this absolutely enormous public backlash from people who had such sentimental value invested in Coke's recipe that it completely blew up in their face. Well, and I think there's a good reason for this, too, because you're talking about the mid-1980s, which is the height of the Cold War, you know, the height of, uh, of, the, of the excess of the 80s at this point, you know, and the faith in the American government is being questioned or has been questioned because of Vietnam and all this stuff. And, you know, well, the one thing that was absolute was Coca-Cola, right? You know, American is Coca-Cola. And to see them change their recipe in an effort just to increase their profit margins was seen as the, the epitome of capitalism in a negative way. Um, and... Um, it, you're absolutely right. It was a backlash. They actually had to hire um, additional phone uh, operators to be able to handle all of the phone calls they were getting in. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, pre-internet, where you could literally call in on a brand and like express your opinion to uh, to a corporate brand. It's crazy. To a human being on the other end of it, too. Exactly. Thousands and thousands of people wrote in. 
and uh, expressed it. And not not even necessarily people who were drinking Coca Cola. <laughs> um, yes, there was the the loyal brand carriers, but at the same time, tons of people who just recognized the importance of Coca Cola being what it was. Right. Yeah. So for a while, what they did. So again, eighty days later, by the, basically it was re- announced in. April? I think it was announced in early May or is it April? No, it was April and, then by and, July. And, and by June it was gone. Yeah. Um, or I think July, early July. Um, the the president of the company decided to they were gonna they called it Coca-Cola Classic, right? That's where it changed to. Because they were making they were making new Coke and Coca-Cola Classic uh, simultaneously for a long time. In fact, I think it was only a couple of years ago that they officially truly stopped making new Coke completely. Um, but you wouldn't have known that in the United States because Coca-Cola Classic dominated and re- re-dominated again. Um, and it had but the springboard a, effect, too. It completely right. reinvigorated the company as it was, you know, suffering and, and, and you know, fighting against Pepsi for dominance. All of a sudden, Pepsi was on the run again, and Coke was the, the king in, uh, in the castle. Right. But we also have to, we can't forget the rise of Coke's younger brother, basically, right? Diet Coke. Diet Coke oh, was yeah. a product of the 80s because people were trying to get healthy and lose weight. So they came up with the Noah. They developed an, a no-calorie sweetener for people to enjoy. And if you ever wonder, why does Diet Coke taste so different than Coca-Cola? Well, you really have no looking to look no further than its even younger brother that came out 20 years later with Coca-Cola Zero, right? So new, so Diet Coke was based off of the new Coke formula. And to this day is still based off of the flavors of the new Coke formula. If you want to know what new Coke tastes like, pretty much that's the only way you're going to be able to taste it nowadays. Um, and that's why it was always Diet Coke, not Diet Coca-Cola Classic. Um, unless you went to Europe, though, or other parts of the world, because they called it Coca-Cola Light. Hmm. Um, so in 2005, they eventually decided, well, let's make a sugar-free version that's like Coca-Cola Classic. And that's where, how Coke Zero uh, was born. Um, and I can't be happier, because I loved Coca-Cola back when I was fatter. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm not making fun of people's weight. I just, I, I was very, very heavy at one point. I drank a lot of Coca-Cola. Again, we talked about sugar, not very good for you. Um, and now I enjoy Coca-Cola Zero. Uh, that didn't contribute to my weight loss. Diet and exercise contributed to my weight loss. But nevertheless, if I want something cold and fizzy and refreshing, I have that versus a regular Coca-Cola. Um, Coke should just send me money at this point because that was a shameless <laughs> endorsement. And, you know, it's also worth mentioning, though, that Diet Coke, as popular it is as it is now, um, was not the very first diet soda, but the first oh, no, diet no, no. soda was created by the Coca-Cola company. Tab uh, was Tab it? exactly in 1963. Yeah, uh, the difference though. Go ahead. Well, just well, there are a lot of differences, particularly in the formula and the flavor, but it um, it never really caught on because there was a lot of um, negative press around it. That its main uh, sweetener, sodium saccharin. Um, was uh, potentially uh, an animal carcinogen. Right, right. And um, by the way, saccharin is still used in diet tonic to, di- uh, to this day. So, you know, the jury is still out on, on whether it actually is or not. No, they, there are people who say that there's been correlations between people who drink high amounts of sugar-free sweetener and other health problems, but um, 
the the other people will say that well those tests are not conclusive. I would say do your own yeah. research and make a decision for yourself. That that so big well a lot of it's around aspartame and Splenda and its potential side effects that it may have. Yeah, although yeah. Splenda uses is um, sucralose and it's that's um that is different and that one's that was con- is considered safer of the two. Yeah. Um, but you're right, aspartame is the is the sugar free sweetener that's used in pretty much every diet soda um, i think with the exception of the, the diet pepsi brands they use uh, sucralose now they use splenda basically as their sweetener um and coke has even gotten on this trend too because coke tried all these different brands in the early 2000s too and you now we saw obviously we saw coke zero which stuck um but we also saw coca-cola black which was like their way of trying to make a coffee flavored coca-cola yeah i tried it. it was it was weird vanilla um, coke and lime coke orange coke all sorts of Bizarre right, which variations. you can, which, which has still stick around to this day through the means of Coca Cola Freestyle, which are those machines where you can go and get whatever flavor of Coca Cola you want. And these machines are absolutely brilliant because they borrow technologies from the from the biomedical field and also uh, printers. And the the syrup that uh, you know is used to create all the different combinations of flavors and what have you are are sold like printer cartridges. They're really cool. I was at um, Five Guys the other day. Yeah. And they opened up the bottom of it to refill one of the cartridges. And they look just like printer cartridges. And they got all the different little, you know, labels on them of all the different brands. And they just kind of slap them into place. And then there's these more generic ones that include, like, the vanilla flavoring and the orange flavoring and all that. And then you can go in and choose, like, a Sprite. And then you can do, like, a black cherry Sprite, which you're not really going to find unless you go to one of these... So right. you can machines. do you can do like I believe you can do was it lime, orange, cherry, raspberry, vanilla is one, peach vanilla. is one. Yeah. Right. And and that's kind of harkening back because Coke was trying to recapture the um the soda fountain uh you know callbacks of the 1950s by being able to add other flavors to it. So they so vanilla coke was a thing for a while. Diet vanilla coke or no obviously was a thing too. Uh but, cherry coke to this day sticks oh, around. Oh yeah. Sure. But, uh, and Coca and Coca Cola Zero Cherry as well. Here's the really brilliant part: is every time you use one of those machines, it reports exactly how much you poured of what combination, and sends it immediately back to the Coca Cola company's parent company, where they analyze the crap out of that data, and they use it to build out, you name it, all sorts of different new flavors and marketing campaigns and all sorts of stuff. Welcome to the digital age, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, absolutely. Your genius. Coke machine is spying on you. Yeah. Go oh. ahead. I know you want to. Break your iPhone. Go live in a <laughs> fort somewhere. Live off the land. It's happened. Coke now knows what you like. Um, because you told him. Um, <laughs> That's right. It, it, I mean, um, it's, it's, it is pretty brilliant. It's also makes you feel really... A little on the, on the uneasy side, but um, at the same time, like, it's at a public place. It's not like they know who you are as a person, unless there's a secret camera taking a picture. Oh, God um, knows. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Um, but anyway, the point I was trying to make was that, you know, you had a lot of Coke, as you were talking about with Tab, there have been other Coke experiments that didn't really catch on, right? Um, C2 was the big one. That was their way to cut the calories in half, and that was, like, half sweetener, half regular sweetener. Um and now you see the most recent version of that, um, which I think is kind of catching on because it's been around for a few years now, but who knows if it will stay. It's that green label of Coca-Cola Life, which is um, it's cane sugar 
and then stevia. Uh, and so it's got like half the sugar that you would, or not even that, like a third of the sugar you would get from regular Coca-Cola. Um, but supposedly just as sweet and tries to maintain the flavoring of it. They introduced that in 2013. And then I think they realized, you know what? We're trying to cater to the to the organic crowd, the Whole Foods crowd. We might as well just, you know, either invent or buy a label that's already organic. And we'll just make money off of that. And I think that's probably what they do these days. Yeah, it's true. And they're serving like the little glass bottles. They're serving yeah. smaller portions and all that stuff. So they're, they're, the, they're Coke's way of saying they're, they're trying to be healthy. Um, and so a couple of things I want to talk about, want to wrap up, because we've been going for a while now. And yeah. um, obviously, amazing conversation. Really, really fun to talk about. Um, first of all, I want to talk about how Coke maintains its quality nowadays, because it operates in over 200 countries, which is just staggering. Um, and again, in, in everyone else in the world, other than America, you know, because we, we love our Coke and we like it in large quantities, we make our stuff out of plastic bottles, but everyone else in the world, they use glass because one, it's easy to recycle yeah. and two, it's also easy to reuse. You can get 15 uses out of a, of a Coke bottle, um, that's glass versus having to, you know, recycle a, a plastic Coke bottle after every use pretty much. Um, so it cuts down on, uh, on waste and uh, 20% of every recycled Coca-Cola bottle comes from the glass from a, from a previous Coca-Cola bottle, um, which is why they try to reuse the existing bottles so much um, for that reason. They basically, they only recycle the broken bottle ones um, until they can't use them anymore. And they have a plant that washes the bottles. It takes almost an hour and a half to do and then bottles them uh, that way. Um, but because they're glass, they can't bottle them quite as fast without having to put shielding up because if they, if they fall, um, if you know, they could shatter and then that's a, that's a, a danger, right? So they put metal shielding up over the conveyor belts to do that. Um, whereas in, uh, the United States, they do, it's almost like, it's almost like the top gun roller coaster where like you're dangling. They actually dangle the bottles because the the neck of the bottle at the very top right between the the bottle itself and the the screw top can actually support the entire weight of the of the bottle Mm. so they have these little harnesses they put the plastic bottles in which are essentially molded from what looks like a test tube of hard plastic um they use hot air to push them into a mold um to blow them up into a mold it's like inflating a balloon basically and they rocket these things down it's essentially this bottle roller coaster, and then they fill them up that way. Um, it's crazy weird. Um, but what they also have to do is they have to make sure that because the water is so different in every country, they have to make sure that the flavor stays so consistent. So that's why when Coca-Cola released the Dasani water brand, it's essentially the water they used to make Coca-Cola without it being uh, fizzy. And then why everyone says, well, why does it taste so bland? Why does it taste so flavorless? Well it's, well, it's not entirely flavorless. They add a little bit of sodium to it for flavor because the human body actually likes that. But um, that's because in the Coca-Cola filtering plants, they, they try to distill out any other minerals or any other impurities in the local water that could create any variation in flavor. And that's why, uh, that's how they're able to maintain the flavor because the syrup, they've got down to a science. They can make that anywhere. They can ship that anywhere. And it will taste the same. But the water, since it's 90% water, that's where it can kill you. So um, once they refined that process, they were able to con- to ensure that they have a, a, the same flavor pretty much everywhere in the world. 
it is a really amazing company. It's it's been on an amazing ride. It continues on one. Uh, it is by far one of the most recognizable brands in the world and is a huge, huge money maker uh, and is not showing any signs of, of declining in that in that way. Well, I think we should, however, before we wrap things up completely, mention that Coca-Cola hasn't been without its controversies. Like any major corporation, they're going to run into these. Um, everything from concerns about pesticide and water contamination in India, as well as um, the diverting of water from farmers who were desperately in need of it, uh, again in India, um, to concerns over animal testing in the early 2000s, and perhaps uh, one of its most recognizable um, controversies, which is uh, apartheid in South Africa. And its, its involvement in supporting that type of, of governing since its introduction into the country in 1938, but then its almost complete reversal in 1986 when it saw that uh, the tides were turning against not just uh, apartheid in South Africa, but also against Coca-Cola as a result of their support. Well, so, so here's the thing that we have to think about, which is, and it's not, it's not a defense of Coca-Cola or any brand who practices this, this mindset, it's that um, the rule of the guiding principle of any global corporation is if it's bad for profits, we don't support it, basically, is what it comes down to. And the extent with how, someone, how far people will take that is where it becomes very, very uh, challenging ethical d- debate because you're talking yeah. about now whether uh, whether you support the government because it's democratically elected or is it easier to support the dictator that, that wants to take over that country? Or is it, do you want to support the quality of its citizens or denizens at this point? Um, or do you want to support the status quo because that's going to make sure that you don't have an economic impact in that country? And, um, you know, I, and I understand that, but then you also have another side of it outside of South Africa and back at the leadership of Coca-Cola. And in 2000... Um, Coca-Cola actually settled out of court uh, for $192.5 million in a class action lawsuit that, you know, quite rightfully was pointing out the amount of racial discrimination that was going on in the Coca-Cola company and the fact that it was not promoting, it was not allowing, um, you know, any kind of equal pay for minorities in its company. Um there were simply no ways towards management for a lot of these folks. And uh, the company acknowledged it and then made some pretty dramatic changes to the point where they're actually considered to be one of the top 10 companies for diversity uh, these days. But, you know, it took 16 years to, to make that change come around and a little bit of forcing. So, you know, yeah, it hasn't been, yeah. like I said, it hasn't been without its controversies. Yeah. Um, and it's, well, but it's at least it's, it's done cr- something about it. Totally, and it's currently mired in another controversy. Uh, some of you who were on Netflix may have seen the documentary, the, the Coca-Cola case, yeah. um, which is um, the current controversy. It was made. In, it, it was a documentary made in 2013, um, and it talks about uh, Coke's current debacle with um, Latin American unionists, uh, who were basically union workers who were trying to fight for fair wages and fair treatment, like we have in the United States. Um, and Coke has supposedly been, according to the this documentary has evidence to show that they've used you know, um, kidnapping, murder, assassins uh, to strong arm the unionists into following their current practices, um, which is honestly very, very shocking. Um, but 
I have not watched the documentary, so I really can't speak to it other than just seeing a, a trailer for it. Yeah, and, um, and there's always two sides to everything in this, and that's not what this podcast is going to be about. But, you know, I would I would hope, though, that if there are any elements of truth to this, that a company as recognizable as Coca-Cola that's had as big an impact on America and the world as we've talked about in this past hour uh, would step up to the plate and do what's right and remove those uh, who are in control that are leading to to those atrocities to be committed if it's proven to be true at any point um yeah and if not then at the very least it should be a reminder that every company needs to be ethically and morally conscious of the impact that they have on the world yeah and this is i mean without getting in too much of a socio-political um debate because like you said that's not what this podcast is about I mean, this is kind of the, I mean, this is pr- very factual when I say this. This is the the double-edged sword of global capitalism, right? Yeah. Like we mm-hmm. talked about, like every, glo- I mean, every uh, global brand, every global corporation is mired in com- controversy of some kind, you know? People love Coca-Cola, but we all know in some countries they haven't been very ethical with, or speculated that they haven't been very ethical with how they treat their workers. There have been numerous other brands, clothing, food, you name it, that have done the same thing. It's not making it okay at all. Um, but that's a much, honestly, that's a much, much bigger discussion that you're talking about, like how about, you know, a global economy and about a global uh, village, the global community um, that um, is incredibly complex and just honestly out of the scope of what this podcast is meant to do. Um, but we encourage you guys, as we always say, don't take our word for it. Go out there. Do the research on your own. Find that information for yourself. Make your own conclusions and decisions. But, you know, err on the side of history. Uh, Go back and look at it all and put it all into perspective at the very least. uh, Because I think it will help you make the most educated decision. Yes, indeed. Um, And, you know, folks, Coke has served 1.6 billion times a day. Think about that for a moment. That's crazy. That means one-sixth of the world has a Coca-Cola every day. Or, well, I mean, that, that's roughly. I mean, I'm being very, very um, nonspecific with that because obviously some people buy multiple Cokes in a day. But that's a, just a, that's a crazy average to think about. So uh, with that, let's um, get into some listener feedback. This week in listener feedback. So it looks like we've got two pieces of feedback, both from the same person, but two days apart. So we're going to read them both. Uh, these come from Clarissa and her first one says, hi, all my sister just got her first post college job. And I recommended you guys as a great solution for commute boredom. She's an anthropologist with a geeky streak, at least as wide as mine. Uh, That made me think that I never actually reached out to you guys with feedback. I love the serious yet relaxed approach you take to history. Every episode, I feel confident that the information provided was accurate to the best of your ability but it never feels like history. It feels like stories. I'm still listening through back episodes, only been a follower for a couple of months now, and I really enjoy the amazingly wide variety of topics you've covered. Uh, Regarding variety of topics, I had two thoughts for episodes for you. With the Olympics going on right now, I'm getting uh, my biannual chance to listen to a wide variety of national anthems. I think that a history of national anthems... Oh, I thought this was going to go Olympics, but national anthems, that's cool. Uh, in general, and a few specific examples would be very interesting. 
Also, of course, an episode on the Olympics themselves. Well, you're still catching up, so we're going to let you go on that one. Well, she uh, responds. Yeah. Oh, yeah, ahead. I see that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's where her response was. There you go. Anyhow, uh, finally, although I'm not from the Bay Area, my family is. My extended family are from Sunnyvale and Saratoga. I love hearing you guys reference places I know. Keep nerdy. Clarissa. Clarissa, uh, we're going to read your next one in just a moment here, but uh, I think... National anthems is a really cool idea. It is a cool one, especially when we talk about the American national anthems history, because it almost changed. And um, it almost changed in like the 1940s, interestingly enough. Hmm. And, the, and of course, the history behind the Star Spangled Banner. Just, just from America, if that's what America's national anthem is like, you can only imagine what other countries have as interesting stories about their songs. Um, I think we should Germany. put it on the docket. I think it's a good yeah, one. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, Germany's national anthem should be a fun one to talk about. But Clarissa wrote in two days later, and um, this is what she has to say. My podcast feed downloaded the table tennis episode almost exactly 24 hours after I sent my last feedback, which she requested an Olympics episode. It was like a miracle. Thanks, guys. Well, you know, we know how to find trends, and we know that the Olympics was a was a very topical event, so it would we would have been remiss in our duties if we didn't discuss it. We also um, provide so, miracles as well. Ample supply of miracles. Yeah, though, still working on the water to wine trick. That hasn't quite worked out. Been drinking a lot of water. Um, <laughs> so I just finished listening, literally paused before feedback to send this, and I loved the episode. The game was super fun. I only missed the tiebreaker, um, at least in the modern round. So she knew all the answers except mm-hmm. for the tiebreaker. I think I missed one or two of the ancient. Um, basically, I'd probably really get along with Martha is what she says. Um, <laughs> if you do another episode in two years or four, I think it would be uh, interesting to focus on the political history of the modern games. Yeah. They're meant to be a peaceful place to work things out internationally. This has worked more or less well at different times, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, we do try to keep the podcast apolitical, but, you know, we can't deny the fact that, you know, the Olympics were boycotted quite a bit in the 80s, um, and that the Goodwill Games was a response to that. So, you know, there's definite precedence for that that we can talk about. She also said, I had another thought looking at the results table. The history of names, like how names have different forms in different languages, and how they connect. Thanks for pre-knowing my top request and fulfilling it. Well, you're welcome, Clarissa. <laughs> awesome. uh, you might say that we uh, explained it all with that feedback. <laughs> yes? Yes. All the millennials just either laughed or they all just like <laughs> shook their heads saying, wow, really? You're going to make a Nickelodeon pun? Yes, I will. Yeah. Because if Eric won't do it, I will. We've come to the end of our episode. Look at that. We have. And you know what, guys? We thank you for the feedback. If you want to become a feedbacker, you can do a, uh, do it through a couple different ways. Um, personally, I'm a fan of uh, foxes, using foxes mm, with message yeah. tubes on it. Mm-hmm. Fox That's a good one. is always a very, very good one. Um, but probably the safer way of doing it, uh, because foxes bite, um, is to go to neuronomy.com, click on the Talk to Us link, and you can submit a feedback that will go directly to all of our email inboxes. Um, if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can go to the interwebs and look up at Nerdonomy, and you will find us on either you know uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search for Nerdonomy. You will find us, I promise you. Um, while you're at Nerdonomy.com. Oh, 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 Brian. What? We need a new computer. 
We do need a new computer, so thank you. Because while you're at nerdonomy.com, you can also click that donate button and uh, help us out by giving us a PayPal donation to help us buy a new computer for our nerd cave. It's um, old. It's old. We need we something got, new. Exactly. We got a $2 donation uh, last week. Two I'll bucks. take it. I'll take it. You know, we said we'll take anything above a dollar, folks. Uh, it's just because I don't think it, uh, I just don't think that PayPal will take anything less. Um, but, <laughs> um, so there it is, folks. Like, there's proof. If you got two bucks, send them our way. We appreciate it. Um, or you can also buy an audible.com trial uh, like uh, we have on the side link of our page and we can get a commission off of that. Or buy a t-shirt or all those other cool ways that we you can support us. But more importantly, aside from helping us get a new computer, you can spread the word of nerd. Tell your friends and family. Tell everyone you know about our podcasts um, because we like doing this. I've been talking about this way too long. Um, go have yourselves a Coke. <laughs> Shameless promotion. We're waiting for our check, Coke. Seriously. We're still not getting paid for this. This sucks. I know. It sucks. Though, we, of course, we say it, and all of a sudden, because our PO box is listed, like, we get a call from the post office, like, you have this giant case of Coca-Cola that's been <laughs> here for, like, two weeks. What do you want to do with it? <laughs> Please make, bring Coke Zero. Um, on that note, guys, it, it is that time. So until we meet again... Stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Adios. Later. Is that a helicopter? Yeah, that's probably the DEA. Hmm. Either that or, or really pissed off Tim Allen. <laughs>